Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello and welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah. Hi, y'all. Last week on Monday, January 4th, a few hundred workers at Google formed a union, the Alphabet Workers Union, which New York Times calls the culmination of years of activism. This is something that is really big news, though it would later be overshadowed by other events last week, which we will touch on. Because Silicon Valley and the tech industry as a whole have historically been, you know, very much a union free zone. They have constructed a lot of mechanisms to keep unions out of their companies, especially these big companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, and Amazon, um, to say nothing of the gig economy that has popped up in their wake. So, when I saw the headline that Google workers had unionized, I think, and I'm sure you share this thought, you know, that was good news. You know, that was something worth celebrating. For a change. And uh, when usually when you hear about Google doing something these days, it's not good. And and no one is, is getting anything out of that other than a few top flight executives. Mostly, I think what is notable about your intro there is that I can't believe that January 4th was like this week. Um, <laughs> my week start on Monday. Anyway, unalloyed, uh, I, I would say mostly unalloyed good news. Right. There are caveats because this is not a traditional union structure. And I, and I think we do have to touch on what what makes this something of an experiment, really. What the Alphabet Workers Union is, is a minority union. That is a union that does not seek to exclusively represent all Google employees in collective bargaining. Um, for decades now, exclusive representation has been the mode for American unions. Uh, unions seek to, if they aren't already at, at a company, they want a vote from the company's employees, the people who will t- be a part of that bargaining block so that they can represent all of them and thus have collective power in that way by representing the totality of employees. Google is a company with tens of thousands of workers. Um, I'm not sure the exact number off the top of my head. Um, and so far, the Alphabet Workers Union has 300 members. There's a um, thread on Twitter uh, by a man named Dr. Dave Kemper, at least that's what he's going by on Twitter, um, talking about the ways in which you know this is sort of untried territory, not just for unions, but like legally speaking, it's not really clear that this is something they can do. And I'm sure in the months to come, Google will push back against the idea that this union even has a right to exist. Um, the right to collectively bargain is enshrined under the National Labor Relations Act, but as as I said, historically, it's been single union companies in a way. Do, am I making sense? 
Yeah, no, this is something we've talked about on previous punchings out that the Wagner Act, which is what created, you know, the the uh, National Labor Relations Board and sort of enshrined a unionization process, channeled all of the labor activism that was happening in the 30s in the wake of the, the Depression and the light at the end of the tunnel that was represented by the New Deal, which left a bunch of workers out. Uh, but, you know, for the industrial working, for most of the industrial working class of the time, um, what it did was enshrine one very specific and very adversarial process um, that I, and I've, not to brag, but I've mentioned this before, made it very easy for uh, corporations and firms to beat the process just by, you know, taking advantage of the fact that there was only one way to legitimately unionize. And the Alphabet Workers Union, in what you might call, I don't know, this is a word that you often associate with Silicon Valley companies, in an attempt to innovate, um, <laughs> have come up with a new structure that technically doesn't give them collective bargaining rights under the NLRA, but which does allow them to represent the workers that they represent their members. And it would, and depending on which legal theory, because we live in you know a, a world where a uh, friend of the show, Neil Gorsuch, gets to determine what uh, work is and uh, <laughs> when a company has the right to tell you to die for uh, for its bottom line, um, yeah. under depending on what legal theory you believe, they would have the right to enforce unfair labor practice claims on their members. Um, so it's kind of an interesting idea they've had where they've said, well, Google is never going to let us do a traditional union. That's going to be a dead letter. So let's begin uh, through a non-traditional structure and see if we can't work our way up to win exclusive representation because that has happened in other areas, which is very interesting. I didn't know that part before today. Yeah. Um, I, I think it's, you mentioned the idea of legal theory, you know, um, as we've t discussed on this show, the law is only as good as the people willing to enforce it and the people willing to interpret it even. And I, I think it's, it's been noted in some corners of Twitter that probably not a coincidence that this happens when it does on the eve of uh, Joe Biden becoming president and presumably appointing a national labor relations board that will be majority Democrat rather than one that under Trump has, you know, often undercut workers' rights and a workers' ability to collectively bargain. There's some timing in that where they might have more favorable ground because of that, um, though the Supreme Court remains what it is, a place that hosts Neil Gorsuch and a number of other Cretans. You know, That's no way to talk about a friend of the show. <laughs> you mentioned this idea that Google would never allow like a full union to pop up at their company. And on Wednesday, two days after the news about um, this union's formation, there was a story in Vice about the company Google uses for union busting, a, a firm called IRI Consultants, which- Oh, oh, IRI Consultants. Yes, we've talked about them on, if I remember correctly, episode 93, titled Consultants. We brought them up specifically. I, I'm glad you remember that because their specific name had slipped my mind. But yes, um, this is a company that, as I said, busts unions. It collects, and specifically, uh, Vice reports how- uh, 
to quote from their subheadline here, leaked files from IRI consultants, a top union avoidance firm hired by Google, show how it collects data on workers' personality, motivations, and work ethic to bust unions. Um, and effectively, what Vice describes in its reporting is like racial profiling and yeah. a collection of some really like minute details about Google's workforce and the ways those details can be used to break solidarity and undermine the possibility of collective action. This is this is one of the problems that every unionizing effort is going to have that you know we have a lot of difficulty with we we can ask for solidarity or we can demand solidarity but we all seem to have a lot of trouble defining what that actually means in practice what um and one of those things is, you know, you don't give up on your fellow worker because of uh, uh, personal conflicts that will end up causing cleavages that will end up with both of you being more abused by your company than if you had never begun organizing at all. And uh, this has been a banner year for that because, or pardon me, I, sorry, sorry. Last year was a banner year for that mm-hmm. because uh, was it last year that Amazon uh, was discovered to have called one of their union activists whose name escapes me right now, unfortunately, but they called him inarticulate. Yes. Specifically. And it's a pretty incredible thing to do that just offhand in the year 2020, you know, as they were firing him for organizing amid the beginnings of the COVID-19 pandemic for better conditions. That's right. And, Every every one of these companies, the the big four these days, which I think, uh, you know, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and and Twitter, they can't generally get away with doing what gig economy firms have done because the jobs that they need done are largely not doable by gig workers. So what they've been doing is instead they've had to turn to much more traditional methods of union busting, and that is uh, hopefully with the formation of this union, that's going to come back to bite them in the butt a little bit. Um, As you mentioned, Ryan, now, hopefully, hopefully, we're getting a friendlier National Labor Relations Board. And maybe this might be the one thing that uh, Joe Biden is willing to uh, debate the Republican Party on. And so that that could be interesting, honestly, if if big tech is uh, forced to allow unions and, and allow labor activism. That is, that is a first step towards a really much more magical future. When, when you brought up Amazon, I thought you were going to talk about how a few months ago they were found to be using the Pinkertons for their, uh, yes. spying. On about. Yeah. And it's just, it, it's like, uh, the punching out rogues gallery is all in this. We're starting 2021 with a trip down memory lane. Yeah, um, all our haters. I, I do want to quote a bit from this Vice article. Specifically, the documents they found were in relation to a, a unionization campaign at two Seattle hospitals in 2019. Um, quote, according to documents obtained by Motherboard, IRI union avoidance consultants, terrible phrase, hate that, regularly gathered information about 83 rank and file hospital employees' personality, temperament, motivations, ethnicity, family background, spouse's employment, finances, health issues, work ethic, job performance, disciplinary history, and involvement in union activity in the lead up to a union election. Each employee was then given a rating for how likely the company believed they were to vote for the union. 
In the notes for one employee, IRI consultants wrote that they were lazy, money-oriented, aloof, from Samoa, tired of people on team and doesn't want to assist them, and told managers that the union is full of crap. Uh, Pretty good. Um, The from Samoa part really stands out there. That that's a trait. Um, it, it, these are real people, not like Sims. Like I, I don't know <laughs> where to begin with this. It's um, I mean, it's not surprising. We have talked in the past about you know what these firms do is just it, it's the cop playbook, but applied very specifically. The the organized crime that you are rooting out this time is a union. Um, that hasn't even existed yet. So it's like trying to stop the mob before the mob is a thing. But you have to love the ability that these people have to get this profound level of information about everybody. Um, you know, doing the the finding information on spouses' employment mm-hmm. and uh, rating them, uh, you know, on how likely they are to vote for the union. Like it's, I don't know, like an online dating service or the Los Angeles Dodgers front office. This is, it's, it's very depressing that this is the kind of stuff that you have to put up with. If all you're doing is trying to get better working conditions, it would be one thing if these were the resources organized and arrayed against you for trying to, I don't know, but completely apropos of nothing, overthrow (laughs) the government. Um, But for just trying to like have a livable wage, a thing that, you know, would probably over the long term cost you less than having to keep hiring union avoidance consultants. But we all know why the calculus is the way that it is. Um, just one last note on that. You, you talk about the cost of hiring these services. Uh, according to a 2019 report by the Economic Policy Institute, employers in the U.S. spend roughly $340 million a year on union avoidance consultants. Right. And uh, they often report being paid in the neighborhood of $350 an hour or $2,500 a day for their work. Great. Yeah, good work if you can get it, I guess. There's always money to be made in doing, in serving power, which is what we said for that consultants episode. There is always money to be made in uh, telling firms, no, no, you're right. You don't need to pay your employees better. What you need to do is pay me so that I can crush them. Right. Now, we should take a step back because we've talked about the reasons, um, you know, the ways Google is pushing, w- could or would push back against this and like the method of unionization. But we should talk a bit about some of the motivations of uh, these Google unions, uh, Google workers, rather, you know, why they want to unionize. Um, from outside, at least until a few years ago, Google had this reputation as a fun company to work at. You know, they have ping pong tables. They pay well. And they have genius hour. They they used to anyway. They I, I think they've reduced it, but they used to have that thing where they let you have 20% of your work day or your work week. I don't remember how they did it uh, to work on anything that you wanted, provided that it could be shared. Uh, hmm. which was basically tricking you into serving as their own creative department. But at least they were paying you for that time, which is something. Yeah. Um, that, that Genius Hour has now become an educational concept, by the way. It's now something that you're encouraged to do in classes, like you know, like your, your students' boss in a way that the same people will tell you that you're, you shouldn't be 
it, it's very strange. But because it comes from Google, it's fun and interesting. So you have to uh, you have to do everything that they're doing. Those of you who had 16 minutes on the pool for when Noah would reference his job, you win. I still haven't explicitly acknowledged it, so we're still on record watch here. Now, we, we discussed this a couple years ago in an episode about the uh, tech industry, but specifically some of the issues Google employees have had with their bosses, their company. Um, from June 2018, there was a story that Google, facing an internal rebellion, will end its work with the U.S. military. Um, they had a contract with the Department of Defense that expired in 2019, and because employees were uncomfortable with what their work was going towards, um, they decided not to renew it. Um, that was, was that Project Maven? I believe, yes. Um, it was weird that the main plank of that project was to uh, buy Sports Illustrated, but you know. <laughs> That's a deep cut. It is. Anyway. Uh, yes, they, they mentioned here, this is a, a tweet from the Alphabet Workers Union account saying, you know, Project Maven. They also mentioned Project Dragonfly, which I'm not familiar with. Do you have that mm. uh, anywhere? Th- that also I'm unfamiliar with, unfortunately. Um, All right. Well, we'll continue. Moving forward in time, in November of 2018, more than 20,000 Google employees around the world walked out in protest of the company's handling of sexual harassment cases, where um, Google had paid out more than $100 million to executives accused of wrongdoing and had kept them on at the company rather than facing any retribution for their wrongdoing, which, you know, there could be parallels to that in our current events, who could say? Um, you know, this is something that really was one of the bigger examples of tech workers putting together a collective voice to um, speak out against their company. Yeah. By the way, update, Project Dragonfly was when Google was going to create a search engine that would be compatible with um, the censorship provisions in China. Uh, Or uh, so we don't lose certain listeners, I guess I'll say their media guidelines. I'm reading off a Wikipedia page right now, to be honest, but they also got that canceled. Okay. And also August of 2019, employees demanded that Google publicly commit to not working with ICE. Um, Google's technology was being used for, um, hang on, sorry. I, I think what's interesting here is this is the other side of the coin when you've got when you grow as big as google has right mm-hmm. if you've got because in the same tweet as we're talking about project maven here they mentioned you know twenty thousand plus googlers and that's presumably uh full-time employees that mm-hmm. doesn't include contractors or anybody else like that if you've got that many people if you're big enough that you need that many employees eventually you, labor activism is going to start you can't put that many people under the service of one company and not expect them to notice that there are horrible things happening and that things are going wrong and they're going to talk to each other. And Google made that easier when they had a corporate culture of transparency and openness, and they've tried to tamp down on that. But there is a certain, I think, critical mass when it comes to this. It's one thing if you're a small business and to stop anybody organizing, you only need to shut down, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, four people, you know? And that will swing a vote or that will stop any activism in its tracks. 
But when you're going to have to do that that IRI consultant stuff for thousands and thousands of people, that's not going to be a one-time thing. That is going to be a protracted conflict against your own labor force. And I think in the end, uh, hopefully, that people always end up winning that out uh, because ultimately you you do need people to do their jobs. I mean, Sundar Pichai, is that who it is at Google's? I believe it is. Sundar Pichai is not going to um, be pulling 18-hour days coding, you know? Right. So that that I think is is uh, hopefully a sign of ultimate victory that they hoist themselves by this petard here. All right. Um, specifically, the Google involvement was ICE was this contract for cloud computing that ICE and Customs and Border Patrol had. So not nearly as nefarious as some of the facial recognition stuff that I believe Amazon was involved in, but nevertheless. Um, you know, helping ICE do their job for the Trump administration um, rightly ticked off many Google employees who you know drew a line in the sand about that and said, we don't want to be a part of that. But without really collective power, without the ability to collectively bargain, their ability to put a stop to these things was really limited by, you know, how magnanimous Google executives were feeling about these topics. There's not a lot of leverage that you can put on, you know, company leadership to do the things you want, you know, whether it's politically or otherwise, without collective power. Yeah, I think it's it's very instructive to look at what the alphabet workers are doing in terms of saying, instead of waiting until the climate is entirely friendly, instead of waiting until, um, uh, I don't know, some mythical labor relations act comes into being, uh, you know, the pro act or something like that makes it uh, much easier to form a union instead of taking advantage of or waiting to take advantage of something Mm -hmm. like that. They've decided here's a model that might work to, formalize the things that we've already been doing. Um, Because one thing I did not realize, by the way, while reading that thread, is that technically, because I am non-union, I'm technically in something like a minority union. It isn't official, but it could be. And part of the reason that it isn't official is because we don't know that those things are possible. I can guarantee you right now that none of my coworkers are well-versed enough in labor law to know what a minority union is or what that kind of representation is. Um, But you know, Google recruits from a certain sector of people. And that's a sector of people that if they're angry about what you're doing and they see that it runs counter to their values, they usually have the inclination and the wherewithal to find alternative models of doing things. And so they've decided we may not be able to collectively bargain for everything just now, but we can at least show Google that we're going to keep pressuring them as we have. We're going to reify that. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is, I think, I mean, it, it goes back to what we said at the beginning. That's what makes it good news that yep. they said, we're not going to give up and we're not going to rest uh, on our laurels. We're not going to wait for a formal political thing that lets us do this. We're going to bring it up now and damn the torpedoes and salute for that, honestly. Yeah. And I, I think my point in listing off some of the reasons they have for unionizing at this 
at Google is to push back against the idea that because these are tech workers who are probably making pretty decent salaries, even for the San Francisco area with its famously high housing costs, you know, there's been some thought in the broader discourse, which we all love the discourse. We all love taking part in that, that these workers are privileged and are just sort of LARPing as a union to take that (laughs) um, identity as their own. If you're going to make LARP jokes, just say they're nerds. (laughs) Right. Um, But, you know, this idea that unions should, are and should be exclusive to people who work in manufacturing or coal mining, which isn't true even of the you know, 1950s past that people are imagining for unions. Even at that time, there were workers in other fields who had unionized. And, you know, collective power is important even if you are well paid. It's something that we've discussed on our shows about sports. You know, athletes, very well paid, also unionized and also need the leverage their union provides to offer just a modicum of control over the conditions of their workplace. As we've seen this year, mm-hmm. how different leagues' seasons went uh, very much depended on the relative strength of the union in each league versus its leadership, except that I think the NHL, uh, well, they, they're always in a weird situation, but they more or less pulled it off despite the fact that the NHL union has historically not been all that strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, not the point. This is something that has always annoyed me because uh, and if you had 26 minutes on the pool for when Noah finally explicitly says what his job is, um, I've even known other teachers who don't understand why teachers need unions. And part of that is due to teachers unions themselves, the AFT and the NEA, uh, deciding that the Democrats are, you know, the, the one channel of power for teachers to get labor rights. But a lot of it is also uh, this idea that unless you work, unless you are a, um, honestly, unless you are one of the like five traditional professions that works with their hands, I guess, mm-hmm. you just don't need a union because, you know, you can't lose an arm in an industrial accident or you can't have to retire at 40 with black lung or whatever. And that understanding has so profoundly damaged work in this country and has been so antithetical to workers. I do think that there is progress in that, but when workers at Google, and if this happens in Twitter and Facebook and uh, God in heaven, if it ever happens at Amazon, you're going to see this exact thing done, even if it's warehouse workers, even if it's, you know, I don't know, the people who run the cafeteria at a tech firm, because the people who are objecting to this the strongest are other Silicon Valley do nothings that understand that this is a personal threat to them and their bottom lines. It is not, and I want to make this real clear, this is almost never an ideological objection. It is almost never saying that a certain class of workers actually doesn't need a union. It's saying, I'm afraid that one day my workers will demand better treatment from me. That's all it is. Everything else is window dressing. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the many things that makes this good news is the idea that others may follow suit. We talked at at the start that Silicon Valley has been a hard place for unions to get a foothold. This is 
maybe the firmest grip yet they've had on power, however small and marginal it may seem now in that sector. And we have to hope that other employees, not just at Google, but at the other big tech companies will follow suit and find their own ways of exerting collective power, whether it's through a minority union or through some other formalized method of exerting themselves on their companies, you know, achieving collective bargaining rights with these behemoths of companies, these companies that are now larger and than U.S. steel ever was. It's, it feels at times like a monumental task. It does. Um, it always does. Um, again, I mentioned, you know, I'm non-union. I'm in a small workplace. There's 80 of us maybe that are members. Mm-hmm. Pardon the words crack there. Um, but it even getting one person to move and to understand what, you know, they deserve as a worker feels like moving a mountain. And the good side of it is that once they do, it does feel like the greatest victory on earth. I can't uh, commend the Alphabet Workers Union leadership enough. They're dealing with a company that is ridiculously hostile to what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And they've decided to take that challenge head on. And I think from our corner, we can offer nothing but solidarity and hope for the future. Yeah, that's a really good place to end this segment on. When we come back, we're going to talk about some of the other news of the past week and the ways in which tech workers have a role to play in all of that. We'll be back. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Noah. Hi, y'all. In our first segment, we talked about the news from last Monday that a segment of Google's workforce had decided to formally join a union called the Alphabet Workers Union. This was really, as far as Punching Out was concerned, one of the bigger stories of this new year until it was completely overshadowed a couple days later. Um, Noah, what happened last Wednesday? Uh, Have we we decided as a Punching Out Collective what word we're allowed to use to discuss what happened? Because that seems to be a bit of a sticking point for a lot of people. Um, I've heard the name Democracy Demolition Night given to uh, it. uh, Well, it, it... Animated by a similar racist impulse as Disco Demolition Night. So yeah, that 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 works. That tracks. Um, a bunch of people, and uh, Ryan, you used the word cretins for members of the Supreme Court in uh, the last segment. And mm. uh, these are the same uh, type of people. Um, thousands of people showed up at the Capitol to protest that the Senate, that Congress, mm-hmm. was going to certify uh, the election. And, and allow, you know, Joe Biden, uh, clear the way for Joe Biden to take office as president of the United States. And they were red and mad about it. And they decided to uh, storm the Capitol with pistols and zip ties and nooses and other things that were totally not anything but symbols uh, in hand. 
they went through House and Senate offices. Congress had to be evacuated. Uh, the Capitol Police pooped the bed in every possible way and uh, showed everybody why it is that uh, you should hate cops, regardless of what your politics are at the moment, um, because they just do nothing. They they don't do their jobs. They left one dude to defend the Capitol. They directed uh, members of the mob. They uh, conversed with friends of theirs who were in the people storming the place and um, generally just stood around being useless um, until it seemed like the crowd pretty much uh, got tired of it because they didn't get to take hostages and uh, murder people on camera. And then the FBI sent a bunch of dudes in camo. And I think that's about when it all officially ended. People died. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was, uh, I would like to say that it was an embarrassing night for the U.S., but quite frankly, at this point, I think we've proven that the U.S. is unembarrassable as a country. <laughs> yes. We're not capable of shame, but it is something that stands out from everything else in recent memory in terms of like just the severity of it and the like horrifying closeness it came to like something even worse than it already was. Yep. Um, it's... It feels like it's crossing a line, and at the same time, there is a sense that people in power are eager to pretend it didn't happen by the time this episode airs. Yes, which is how you say, if you look at history, that is that is not an encouraging sign no. for how things are going to continue rolling along. Because if you've got a political leadership class that is so out of touch and so beyond you know, somebody pointed out this, this was the, the tweet that I think finally got me. Somebody pointed out that for a lot of Congress members, this might be their first experience understanding what it's like to be, uh, they said a public school student, which is weird, uh, to be a high school student, pretty much anywhere in the country. Uh, hmm. You know, you were moved to a, a quote unquote safe location. You were told to hide. Uh, you were told, you know, stay away. Don't make a big deal out of yourself. Don't be in line of sight. Nothing of that nature. Um, and of course, a bunch of the people who were evacuated were people who hours earlier were raising their fists uh, and encouraging the protesters. And uh, for some reason, once they got violent, they just didn't want to be around them anymore. Weird. Weird how that happens. Um, so it's there are certain worrying signs. And I mean, there's there's a lot of worrying signs on Wednesday, but there are also worrying signs in how the response has been essentially we want to move on. We want to forget that this ever happened. We want to put it behind us as if time to unify. Yeah. It's time to heal because we need to be in touch with these people. And there's just, there's just been a lot of noises made about looking forward and not back, which is weird because looking forward and not back is how we got here in the first place. Yeah. Just five minutes into the segment. Now we, I should explain, you know, why we're tying these two topics together because a crowd of that size doesn't come from nowhere. A crowd willing to kill and die for the president's belief uh, that the election was fraudulent is not just something that is a weird coincidence. It's something that is directly tied to platforms like Facebook and YouTube and Twitter. These people are being led to believe based on what they're reading in obscure Facebook groups and well, quite large Facebook groups, we should say. And 
what the president is tweeting even that they they've been led to believe things that are wholly at odds with reality and but if you do believe these things then their actions almost make a bit of sense you know if you genuinely believe that the election is stolen this is the sort of thing you're going to do and so the idea that how did it come to this is something that has a lot to do with what these platforms have done to um, promote sort of fringe groups because that drives engagement on their platforms, that drives more eyeballs, more clicks, more ad revenue. Um, it's it's not something that has just happened overnight. It's been a trend that people working at these companies have noticed in the years past. Um, on Wednesday, or it may have been Thursday morning, actually, um, the newly formed Alphabet Workers Union issued a statement where they were plain about the causes of this sort of behavior, this sort of belief. We know that social media has emboldened the fascist movement growing in the United States, and we're particularly cognizant that YouTube, an Alphabet product, has played a key role in this growing threat, which has received an insufficient response by YouTube executives. Workers at Alphabet have previously organized against the company's continued refusal to take meaningful action to remove hate, harassment, discrimination, and radicalization from YouTube and other Alphabet-operated platforms to no avail. We warned our executives about this danger, only to be ignored or given token concessions, and the results have been suicides, mass murders, violence around the world, and now an attempted coup at the capital of the United States. Which really lays it all bare better than... I could word. Yep. And uh, I think it's very important, the point that you bring up that these companies, they do this because it drives engagement, because it means revenue, because it means clicks. Because the next paragraph of that alphabet letter, to me, uh, contains a quote that really sort of puts the end of the week in context. Uh, so it says, you know, for example, YouTube refuses to hold Donald Trump accountable to the platform's own rules by choosing only to remove one video instead of removing him from the platform entirely. Additionally, the platform only cited election fraud as the reason for removing yesterday's video, even as he clearly celebrates the individuals responsible for the violent coup attempt. So, you know, YouTube famous defender of democracy that it is, mm-hmm. but for those of you who may not be aware, you may be much less online than us and God bless you. But, you know, Donald Trump, the the, the end of the week, um, tech companies fell all over each other in a mad race. You know, uh, uh, it almost looked like a, a repeated fumble to try to get uh, Donald Trump and his supporters off their platforms. You know, they were mass banning, depending on the platform. They were looking at his accounts and, and throwing them off and so on. And First of all, we should be really clear. It was hilarious. Um, oh, yes. Let's start with that. It was watching each account get whack a mold out of existence in turn. Um, was well, uh, we should sort of lay out the uh, course of events because it was Friday night. You know, after uh, the famous place when you do news that you don't want talked about too much, Twitter decided to permanently suspend Donald Trump's account. Um, I don't know why they've chosen this term of permanently suspend rather than ban. Um, it seems uh, they, they should have said suspend with prejudice, with extreme prejudice, because that would have made liberals real hot under the collar. Um, and this, too, was in response to what employees at Twitter were saying publicly in the hours before this decision. Um, 
Quote, reading from The Verge now, headline, hundreds of Twitter employees call for Trump to be banned. Uh, More than 300 Twitter employees have signed an internal petition calling for President Donald Trump to be permanently banned from the platform following a raid on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Roughly an hour and a half after we published this story, Twitter apparently agreed. They cite the same sort of things that Alphabet workers were citing, which is that by the letter of Twitter rules, by the letter of YouTube rules, this was not the first time Trump had violated those rules. You know, they were constantly bending their terms of service to make exceptions for the president because um, Trump was sort of the Ohio State, if you will. <laughs> yes. And and Facebook also was guilty of this as well, finding that they wouldn't do anything about Trump's ads even when they were blatantly false. And Facebook had this policy of like not allowing those sorts of things unless you were the president, which it's very stupid to have rules that apply to everybody except the person with the most power. Yes. Which is a thing, by the way, that, that uh, not, I don't want to get into this, but like pretty much every country has some version of that. And I've growing up, I always found that ridiculous, Mm -hmm. Um, but it's only become worse when, and this is something that, we've had occasion to think about in the last couple of days um, when these tech companies become sort of private governments onto their own. This is something you said in some senses before Ryan, that, that corporations begin to have the appearance or take on the functions uh, that government serves in other countries in the U S right. And- I, I don't want to take credit for that idea. That's um, Elizabeth Anderson wrote a book uh, labeling these companies as private governments, which um, really helped me think through that as a, concept. Yes. And in the case of Facebook and Twitter and all of these other ones, if you're going to have algorithms that supposedly can tell fact from fiction, if you're going to have terms of service that are designed to curb or eliminate harassment and hate speech, um, if you're going to profess to be a platform on which you know um, the, the noble American democratic experiment can continue to grow and prosper, and you don't hold to those rules, then your own employees really deserve to have a crack at you for that one. And they did here. And it apparently got Twitter to uh, actually take action. And then some other companies over Friday and Saturday began to fall suit. Uh, well, once now- Twitter mm-hmm. did it, like you described, they were falling over each other to follow suit. You know, Each one wanted to one-up the next because they didn't want to be left out of whatever good PR Twitter had earned from this decision, which That's again right. was... Years too late, which then you had, you know, uh, like Pinterest was banned. Uh, I've I've seen people posting about banning Trump from their sites, like their personal art sites or whatever. Um, it which is all again hilarious. But um, the important part for me is that th- there is, and I think most people are very realistically or very pragmatically giving very little credit to Twitter and these other companies, but they aren't giving them credit nonetheless. And I want to be real clear about this. Jack Dorsey, Mark Zuckerberg, all of these people, they deserve zero credit for any of this because mm-hmm. they only did this. If you want to know whether we are expected to have a peaceful transition of power, Google and Facebook and Twitter are telling you, and Amazon are telling you that right now by doing this because these are not people who take risks. They say mm-hmm. they do and they act like bold disruptors and innovators and visionaries, which has always been the most infuriating thing about the tech sector because they're not. They take on as little risk as possible with other people's money whenever they can. 
And that is what they're doing here. If they took action, it is only because they knew they were armored to the gills against any possible negative consequences. Um, so I think they they know they have either extracted sufficient concessions from the incoming Biden administration, or they have figured that, you know, whatever... Uh, that doing this will avoid scrutiny from the Biden... Yes. Yeah. I think ultimately that, that may be the main one, or they may have gotten more because God knows Joe Biden loves to give stuff away um, to the worst people in the universe. But, you know, it, it's I think it's important to know that these if these companies are doing it, it's because they know that there is something in it for them the same way as they allow Trump and, and all these horrendous, horrendous chuds to get away with well, almost murder, literally, almost literally, mm-hmm. for years, um, because it it was good for the bottom line. Yeah, there, there were all sorts of stories over the summer. Um, the New York Times had a particularly good one, if I remember right, about how Facebook groups in small towns across the country, uh, a couple times in Oregon, I believe, uh, were like driving themselves mad over this idea that like crowds of anti-fascists would be coming on buses to like burn down their town or whatever you know they had like driven themselves into a fervor where they would basically do citizens arrests on innocent passers-by who had nothing to do with antifa or what have you um and part of the way we get here is through decisions made by these companies you know the way these platforms act isn't just you know a fluke of nature it's not something that has to be the way it is it's by design it's designed to drive engagement like i said earlier there's an article last may in the verge headline facebook reportedly ignored its own research showing algorithms divided users what a shock yeah an internal facebook report presented to executives in 2018 found that the company was well aware that its product specifically its recommendation engine stoked divisiveness and polarization. Yet, despite warnings about the effect this could have on society, Facebook's leadership ignored the findings and has largely tried to absolve itself of responsibility with with regard to partisan divides and other forms of polarization it directly contributed to, the report states. The reason? Changes might disproportionately affect conservatives and might hurt engagement, the report says. And I'll even, well, first of all, you know what is a fluke of nature is the phrase fluke of nature. That is very good, and I will be stealing it. Okay. Um, but beyond that, to, to serious matters here, I will even speculate that this whole Facebook algorithm, all of these ideas, um, they may not necessarily have come from Mark Zuckerberg himself, but uh, mm-hmm. probably did. But whoever was responsible for those, because this is the thing about these people. We treat tech on this show. We talk about the specific things that make tech maybe a little bit different from other sectors of the economy. But it is very important to note that in terms of corporate structure, in terms of uh, hierarchy, in terms of who has the power and labor relations, they are exactly like every other corporation, or in some cases, what every other corporation wants to be. And in the case of uh, uh, places like Google and so on. I'm betting you anything that the reason that that study got buried isn't just that you know it'll be against conservatives and it'll hurt engagement and so on, but that it would hurt someone's feelings because they came up with the idea of having this great algorithm that would supposedly 
solve all of our problems, and they can't deal with the fact that their experiment blew up in their face. Mm. And, and that's always that's always what's animating a good deal of this, that these people think of themselves as masters of the universe. And every time they're revealed not to be, they throw a giant hissy fit. Mm. Now, you say that, and normally I'd be inclined to agree, but this specific Verge article does give evidence to the idea that this is extremely ideologically driven at the top. Quote, leading the effort to downplay these concerns and shift Facebook's focus away from polarization has been Joel Kaplan, Facebook's vice president of global public policy and former chief of staff under President George W. Bush. Lit. All right. That's me. I say corrected. (laughs) Kaplan is a controversial figure in part to his staunch right-wing politics. He supported Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh throughout his nomination and his apparent ability to sway CEO Mark Zuckerberg on important policy matters. Uh, Since the 2016 election, Kaplan took a larger role at Facebook and has used that role as laid out in this article uh, to effectively make the company do nothing about the the problem at hand. Um, They cite him as being responsible for their political ad policy where Facebook doesn't do fact checking and their hands-off approach to speech and moderation specifically because he didn't want the company to appear biased against conservatives. Which in practice is going to always result in a company that is biased for the right wing in this country. Right. There's this uh, great phrase of Working the refs, are you, are you familiar with it? Uh, yes. It's this idea that by in a sports game, if you you know complain to the ref, you're not going to get that call overturned 99% of the time, but you may make the ref less likely to rule against you going forward because they already know that they have you angry. And effectively, this is what the Republican Party and conservatives have done towards media and social media over the course of the last four decades now. They've accused the mainstream media of this horrendous liberal bias and in doing so have made a lot of those same media outlets afraid of appearing to be biased against conservatives. And so they promote this idea of having balance on their shows, this false equivalence. It's important to note that they have good reason to be afraid in a lot of cases, because Mm -hmm. increasingly Republicans are perfectly willing to label journalists that don't agree with them as, you know, legitimate targets for murder. Right. The people who were in the Capitol on January 6th were talking about hanging media and hanging press. And there were people who reported from within the chamber as this was happening, um, that they were fearing for their lives just for telling somebody that, you know, I work for the New York Times as a photographer. There, there was a video of uh, an associated press photographer that went around Twitter yesterday that could have ended very badly if things hadn't gone a different way. But beyond just media, conservatives have now turned their target to social media. You know, they've for years have been decrying Facebook as biased against them. Um, even while some of these same people are having dinner over at Mark Zuckerberg's house, you know, these are the people he is friends with, but by doing so they create decision-making processes like this. Um, Facebook famously included the national review, a famously right-wing outlet among its big fact-checking push to the extent that Facebook can be trusted for fact-checking. It's 
they've worked the refs very successfully. Yes. And to be fair, to some degree, the refs want to be worked in this oh, sense. Yeah. They want to know that they are not being uh, held up constantly as a target, you know? Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, you've got the fact that, and Ryan, you said this recently, uh, the the perception that the, the left has people, the right has money. Mm-hmm. And when you're one of these tech companies, I mean, you live on money. That, that is yeah. all of us do right sure, now. Those tech companies especially live by their bottom line and they are not interested in watching it shrink or even stagnate. It needs to get bigger every year. Unlimited growth, you know, as far as the horizon can, uh, can, can encompass. And as a result of that, given a choice, they are always going to bend right because that is the direction that promises them money. And it promises them engagement and it promises them clicks, which promises them ad revenue, which promises them money. Mm-hmm. And the only effective counterweight you can have to that is if people within the company rebel against it. There's just no other way because, again, Mark, I mean, actually, he might try, but Mark Zuckerberg is not going to spend 18 hour days moderating content. No. Joel Kaplan is not going to be, you know, taking the bull by the horns in this regard. These are people who have made their way up to where they don't need to do that and they do not want to come back down. And so, worker pressure from the bottom up is going to be the only way to get them to move at all, even a millimeter from where they are. There's been a lot of, you know, discourse again in the aftermath of the decision to oust these accounts from uh, Donald Trump. We didn't even mention that after getting banned, he tried to use four or five different accounts to post from before getting those banned as well. Very funny. Um, If you've ever spent any time on a message board, you've seen that move before. Always funny. There's been a lot of talk about this will give these companies too much power, too much unaccountable power. And we don't have time to get into that argument here on today's show. But I think we can say that the solution is to make the powerful people at these companies more accountable, more accountable, not just to their own employees, but to all of us, um, to the extent that Twitter has become a public forum, a public square, you know, we all should have some sort of say in how these decisions are made about who has space in that square, who has space on that forum. Um, and that starts with efforts like the ones at Alphabet Workers Union to hold their leadership accountable, at least to what their employees want to see. That's right. No, uh, the o- the main thing wrong with that argument is the future tense. These companies already have too much power. Absolutely. And zero reason to use it unreasonably as people on the left have known for years. If you're truly worried about reducing the power of those institutions, it's not going to come from saying, well, no, you can't go after the president or whatever. It's going to come from giving their workers the freedom to push back on the bad things that they do. That is how some of these companies occasionally get prevented from doing horrifying things, from doing things that in many cases are literal war crimes. So if you are serious about overreach, the move here is to give power to people both inside and outside of Google to keep Google honest, to keep Twitter honest, to make sure that Amazon and Facebook don't run any more of our lives than we than they currently do, and hopefully run less in the future. 
uh, that that has to come from giving people the chance to move those levers. It cannot come from some philosophical idea of what they're allowed to do and not do, because that will never get reified into uh, a material um, change in the way that they operate. Yeah. There's a, a paragraph near the end of the Alphabet Workers Union's letter about Wednesday's events that I think is a useful place to end our discussion on. Um, quote, YouTube must no longer be a tool of fascist recruitment and oppression. Anything less is to countenance deadly violence from Gamergate to Charlottesville, from Christchurch to Washington, D.C., from Jair Bolsonaro to Donald Trump. Alphabet, in failing to act, has done tremendous damage to the thousands of victims of hate and to the world. Every day without change is complicity. We remain committed to building change in our workplace for the betterment of all while continuing to build power for working people everywhere. And I think increasingly that's going to have to be the mindset of the people working at these companies. If we hope to have a future, you know, and maybe I could end the sentence there, but have a future without um, (laughs) these platforms being like used to promote just utter dangerous nonsense. Here, here. For this week, and what a week it's been. I'm Ryan. I was Noah. This is Punching Out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.